to look out and see each one of you. This has been a unique morning at Mount Zion Baptist Church. Around every corner that I have been to this morning, somebody has said, Hey, Pastor, uh, can I tell you what's going on in my life? Um, would you pray for me? And it's been everything from maybe just a, a little situational thing to things that, are, that can, can be life-changing. So before we talk about spiritual warfare, how about let's practice a little spiritual warfare. Is that a good thing? Will you join me in doing that? And the way that you practice spiritual warfare is that you literally call on the one who has already won the battle. So this morning, if, you, if it's you, you know the song, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. If it's you this morning that's standing in the need of prayer, um, I'm going to invite you to stand up, and then I would like to pray for us before we, we open the word. Father, I thank you for this book of Ephesians. I thank you that in the very early verses of it, that you told us that you had equipped us with every spiritual blessing, literally telling us that you had given us everything we need to live this life that you have called us to through the blood of Christ. And God, this morning we recognize that you have given us the authority to appropriate that power, to call on you and to claim it. And God, right now in the name of Jesus, we do call on healing power, on restoring power, on the power over darkness, on the power over depression or anxiety. Lord, we call on the power that's greater than financial needs or, or broken appliance needs or whatever it is, Lord, we're facing this morning. You truly are greater and you have absolutely told us that we could call on you. And so collectively, we call on you. Individually, we cry out to you, God, saying, Lord, in our situation, in my situation, Lord, show yourself full. Show yourself with power. God, you tell us that your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. God, through your word, you can direct us and guide us back to you under submission to you, with courage from you. God, you can do that. You've already done it. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray for each one of us. Lord, we readily admit it's us, that, it, that we're the ones, God, standing in the need of prayer. And so, God, we call on your power. God, we ask you through your Holy Spirit to communicate your truth to us, to to encourage us, to empower us, to hear your word. God, I thank you that you are for us. And so, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray, and with expectation, with anticipation, Lord, we tune our ears to you. Holy Spirit, Move freely, move with power, move in me, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. So, we're in the book of Ephesians, we've been in it now, this is the 28th week. Who would have thought you could take 28 weeks and go through 155 verses, but 
we've done it and we're working our way towards the end of it. And God has taught me quite a bit through this passage. You heard me pray about one of them, Ephesians 1, 3, that every spiritual blessing, everything that we need for life, God says, I've given it to you. There it is. No matter what you're facing, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, it's there, it's yours, call on me. But then, as we move through it, we begin to see that Paul had written this book into two sections. Um, he had written it into two sections where the first section of it was, this is what I want you to believe. And then in 4, 5, and 6, he said, this is how I want you to live what I've told you in the first three chapters to believe. In other words, one is information, doctrine. The second half of it is application. This is how you take it out. And Paul said, I want you to live united. I want you to live right with your family. I want you to live knowing that it was through the blood of Christ that you've been reconciled. And then we got to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. And Paul said, finally. He said, I want you to do this. Now, why would Paul write that? Because he knew that if we took to heart chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 9, that we were going to be in a battle. Because we were going to be people whose lives and whose hearts were surrendered to Christ. And Satan was not going to be happy with that because he is absolutely and completely opposed to the things of God. So Paul said, look, you're going to be in a battle. And I love that he took the moment to say, and oh, by the way, the battle that you're going to be in is not against flesh and blood. Because that's why I can look at the person next to me and what am I going to tell them? You are not my enemy. Because right now, everything in the world is saying, we are enemies. We're enemies because of this. We're enemies because of that. We're enemies and we're enemies and we're enemies. And that's what the script, uh, people are saying. But what the scripture says is that I am not wrestling against flesh and blood, but I'm wrestling against principalities and powers and forces of spiritual darkness. Now, who is the head of that other army? Satan. And we know that he was created as an angel of light. We know that he got arrogant. We know that in his arrogance, he rebelled against God in his rebellion he was thrown out of heaven, and we know that a number of angels followed him. And we know that he has an army, and we know that he, Satan, he, Satan, has been given power by God. In fact, we know that he's been given a lot of power. It's not unlimited power, it's not unchecked power, but he has been given the ability to be the prince of this world. And his number one mission, we find in 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, Be sober, be diligent, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, sinking whom he may devour. Whom he may devour. We, as children of God, have been made devour-proof, okay? As long as we appropriate the power of God through the Holy Spirit in our lives. As long as we're living under the umbrella of the of protection of God. But Satan is walking around looking for the, the believer. First of all, he's already devoured the unbeliever. All right, He's got that one. Until they repent, they're his. 
So he's looking for the believer that's not living under the Word. He's looking for the believer that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's looking for the believer that's not connected to the body of Christ. He's looking for the isolated one that's cut off from the rest of the herd, if you will. And he says, when I find that one, I want to devour them. That's why Paul spent all of this time in the other verses telling us how to be connected to God, how to be connected to family, how to be connected to our church, how to be connected to our employer, how to be connected to the world around us, He's because he knows that the cord of three strands is not easily broken. Now listen to me. When I sin, the first thing I want to do is get alone, right? I want to sin in a group. But once I wake up the next morning and realize what I did the last night, I want to get alone. I want to be away because my sin causes, we talked about it in life group this morning, my sin creates shame, guilt, embarrassment, conviction even for the believer. And so I don't want to walk in here going, Woo! God is good today, y'all. Man, He is amazing. Now I know last night and last week and this and that. No, what's, what I do there is I walk in and I just kind of creep in. And go, ain't nobody looking at me. And I just sit here. What God wants you to do is not just walk in the room, but He wants us to connect with one another. And so Satan is looking for that one that he can devour. He's looking for that person, not only the one that's separated, but let me tell you, he's also looking for the one that's on fire for Jesus. For the one that's leading people and loving people and serving people. Because if he can trip up the leader, guess what? He trips up the followers. That's why I want you to pray for us, for me. Yes. Because he's looking. Because if he can make one of us fall, then he can do it. Now, so here we go. Paul's told us, this is what I want you to believe. This is how I want you to live it. But oh, by the way, if you try to live it and believe it, then you're going to be in spiritual warfare. You're going to be under attack. Satan's going to come after you. That's why Peter would say, be sober, be vigilant, keep your eyes open. Because we do have an enemy. Our enemy is Satan. Our battle is certain. Hear me. Do everything to stand, then what? Stand in the evil day. Not if the evil day, but in the evil day. Stand. So Satan is our enemy. Our battle is certain. Our enemy is a very skilled tactician. Remember last week we talked about some of the tactics that Satan will use. He will use discouragement, division, doubt in your life. And Satan, this is what we need to know. Satan had a beginning. It was at the fall. He is at work in the present. But go ahead and say with me, amen, because his future is guaranteed. Yes, it is. It is guaranteed. Now, indicators that you might be in spiritual warfare. Disclaimer. Not everything in your life is spiritual warfare. Some of it's bad choices. Hear me. And, and let me tell you why Satan loves for us to think that our sin is spiritual warfare. Because if I start believing that my sin, my bad choices, my rebellion are spiritual warfare, then, oh, it's not me. Look how good I am. 
If it wasn't for that mean old devil poking me with his little pitchfork, that would have never happened. And now I cast the blame off of me. It's the same thing that happened in the Garden of Eden, right? It's like, oh, that wife you gave me, oh, this. No, sometimes the things that are happening in our lives are the result of choices that we make. Sometimes the things that happen in our lives are the result of choices that other people make. Now, it's all a spiritual battle, but be careful not to quickly and flippantly just throw it over and say, the devil made me do it. Because if you say that, inadvertently, you are admitting that Satan is more powerful than God himself. Because righteous living, have you ever noticed that, by the way, when we do bad, we say, the devil made me do it. When we do, we do good, we say, boy, look at me, what I did today. Okay? That's kind of where it runs. We throw the bad over here, we take credit for the good. And so, but... There is spiritual warfare, and what are some indicators of spiritual warfare in your life? Sudden changes in health, finances, or relationships for unexplained reasons out of nowhere. I believe those can be an indicator of spiritual warfare. And when you find yourself in those moments, you want to cry out to God, God, why did this happen? God, what's going on in my life right now? God, show me yourself. God, why has this opposition popped up? I can tell you countless testimonies of people who have come to us and said, Pastor, I believe God has called me to do this. And this is way outside of the norm or way outside of the comfort zone of something that they would normally do. And so with eagerness and expectation and excitement, they step out and say, I'm going to do it. And shortly right after that, the phone rings and says, Oh, y'all pray for me. You are not going to believe. This happened in my relationship. This happened to my finances. This happened to my help. Help. This is an indicator of spiritual warfare. Why? Because Satan is looking for whom he may devour. Who does he want to devour? The heart that is stepping out and leaning more and more on Jesus. The heart that is serving. So that's an indicator. Look at it. Another indicator is this. Temptation to sin beyond the normal. You follow me? Beyond the normal. You're like walking along, living life. Life is good. And then all of a sudden, you kiss have to you can't not and the temptation is great and everywhere you turn the temptation is there um it's like this week everywhere i turned i saw that the lottery was one billion dollars this week i was like i don't want to see that because i'm an addictive personality i'd be spent the rent money the house money and you name it it'd be like i know just one more time and that would happen and there are people that would be a whole lot richer today if they hadn't spent all of that. Already had a phone call. Pastor, you ain't going to believe this. Can you help me with this? I said, what? What happened? Well, I just knew this was my week. <laughs> I'm like, oh, no. 
You're right, it was. But we have to be careful there. A temptation to sin beyond. You understand what I'm getting at? It's just, it's there. All right, that's an indication of spiritual warfare. Severe discouragement, depression, spiritual warfare. If Satan can get you down, he knows it's hard for you to get up and stand up for Jesus. Am I right? He wants you there. Crippling condemnation. Do you know what crippling condemnation is? You are, you have sinned. Something has happened in your life. And you just cannot see the way that God could forgive you. You don't see the road back. That is an awful place to be. Because you see, when I get there, you, the word in front of it is very important. Crippling condemnation. It shuts you down. Well, let me tell you the other side of crippling condemnation. It's not just condom, self-condemnation. It's everybody else's condemnation. It's like... There cannot be any good in anybody. I'm going to tell you, this is a true statement. I believe with all my heart. I believe that I could find, unless they're just inherently, decidedly, in a declaring way, evil. I believe that people that I disagree with the most, I believe we could sit down and we would find more things we agree on than we disagree on. But you see, Satan doesn't want me to see the majority of that. He wants me to see the other side of that. And then he wants me to go, well, if you think this way, you're this. If you do this, you're that. If you that, da 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 And then we are divided. The only thing that I want divided is my sin as far as, my, is my sin as, far as the east is from the west. Everything else in Scripture is a reconciliation to God. So, an indicator of spiritual warfare. Intimidation and fear. Confusion. You know what I'm talking about? You're living life and you just can't seem how to make the right choice. You're confused and so the crippling confusion keeps you from doing anything. I often use a phrase, if you don't know what to do, do what you know. Now, let me clarify that. If you're not living for Jesus, don't keep doing what you know. But for the most part, okay, if you're a child of God and you understand the things of God, when you don't know what to do in your life, like you don't know what decision to make, where to turn, open your Bible. It may not make sense, but it has power. All right? Last week in the storm, my sister's house lost power. We took a generator down there, and she said, I don't know what to plug in first. I said, well, how about let's just plug in the first thing we see, because that's more than we had. How do we do it? She's listening, by the way. Hey, Mama. She's at home, <laughs> and she's watching this morning. Um, but that's it. See, we want to think, I don't understand it, and sometimes we just can't be afraid to try. Step out. Look at the confusion and say, God, where are you in this thing? Opposition to the will of God. You can know this, that if you know the will of God, and God has spoken clearly to you, and you are finding opposition to accomplishing that will, God does not oppose Himself. You can know that that is spiritual warfare. 
So just in a little recap, stating it a different way. What are the tactics that Satan will use to destroy you? He will prevent prayer. Why? Prayer, that means self-sufficiency. If I'm not calling on God, I'm calling on me. So he wants to prevent you from praying. I had a wonderful text this week. Hey, pastor, when I bow my head to pray, everything in the world begins to distract me. I don't know what to do. Would it be okay if I just journaled my prayer? Absolutely. If that's how you can focus the best, just start writing. You will be amazed at some of the things that you pen. But it not only did you pen it and pray, but guess what? Now you've got something to pass on to future generations that chronicle your life and your struggles and God's goodness in your life. So what is a tactic? Ta Satan would want you to stop praying. He would want to prevent unity. He would want us to be divided. United we stand, divided we fall. Yes. He wants to prevent commitment. You know what I'm talking about? Every January, America rushes to sign up to do what? To go to the gym, right? We want to work out. I mean, the fitness industry loves January. Because they want you to take a before where you go, ooh. But then they want you to know that if you'll just pay them X dollars a month, in six months you'll be like, ah. And they're banking on that. But Satan is also banking on that. You make a commitment to, on Saturday night. I'm going to get up and go to church tomorrow. Have you ever been so sleepy? You know what I'm talking about, right? You can, you're like, man, these eyes won't wake up for nothing. Yes, he will, com he will prevent commitment, and that's complacency. Now, what happens there? It's like building a wall. Man, I missed last week. But next week, I'm going. Then the next week gets here. Man, I missed the last two weeks. If I walk in now, they're going to make me fill out a Vista card. They probably won't even know my name. And then you wind up at home. And then you wind up disconnected. He wants to prevent joy. He wants to give you discouragement. He wants to prevent spiritual growth. Why? Because if he can prevent spiritual growth, he can nurture temptation. Because The common misconception is this. I accept Christ and I have gained this much knowledge and I think this much knowledge is enough to keep me out of hell and to keep me classified as a pretty good person. So we think, I've got all I need. But hear me. Your knowledge is not what makes you sanctified. Your knowledge is not what makes you saved. It enhances it. It gives you the ability to exercise greater faith. It gives you more knowledge of God. But it's not the knowledge itself that has the power. It's the surrender. 
So I submit myself to the parameters, which, by the way, we're going to be starting a Bible study, commercial break. Everybody go, ah, can't run to the bathroom and get a snack, though. Got to stay. <laughs> um, we're going to start a Bible study called Boundaries. Um, when to say yes, how to say no. Anybody have trouble saying no? Whoop! Here we go. How to say no, how to take control of your life. Uh, we're going to start at November the 7th on Wednesday night in the bottom of the education building. Books will be available next week right back here in this corner. Um, but this is a wonderful book. And it has a lot of crucial pieces of information that will help us as we grow in our faith. So Satan, his tactic, he wants to prevent spiritual growth. Without spiritual growth, there's temptation. So today, we're going to start putting on this armor of God. So let's take our Bibles, open it up to the book of Ephesians. Which, by the way, I love it when we pre-read some of the passage in the worship time. It goes ahead and gets our mind there. Paul says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Hey, do y'all ever like when you read it, want to put like the girl in there, the girl form in there? So I like, I say like, finally, my sistren. I don't know, it's just something that entertains me. And I do it and I'm like, <laughs> there it is. So finally, my people. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on. Do you see it? It's not, there it is, it's automatically on you. There is an action there. You see it? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Okay. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, um, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, how? Girding your waist and the breastplate of righteousness. That's what we want to talk about today. We want to take those first two pieces of the armor. We want to talk about the belt of truth and we want to talk about the breastplate of righteousness. So y'all step back in time with me some 2,000 years. They don't have brogans and blue jeans. They got man skirts, okay? So they take it and they pull it on and it's a tunic. It's got like holes for the arms, it's got like holes for the head, and it's got one big hole for the legs. And that's what it is. So can you can imagine, now you ladies can imagine this better, you know those like tight-fitting skirts and one of your kids get away and you got to go chasing them and you're running like this. You know what I'm talking about? So you can imagine that these amazing Roman soldiers, like the men of the men-men, and they get commanded to go into battle. And he says, charge! And there they go. I'm coming after you. Oh, here I am. No, them jokers reach down there. They hike up that skirt. But here you go. Now you, you, know, you can't run like this either because you're not very effective. So they had to put on this belt. And this belt gave them mobility. This belt gave them protection. This belt gave them the ability to put their other instruments of battle on them. And God is saying to us, I want you to gird yourself up. I want you to be mobile. 
I want you to be agile. Man, I want you to have a holster for your word. Because you don't ever know when you're going to need to pull it out. You hear me? Now, I love what Paul did here. Paul's in prison. And he's looking around saying, man, I need an illustration. Because I'm going to talk to these people about warfare. He says, I need something that's going to help me communicate it. And he looks over there on his left. And there's that Roman soldier. And he's got on all this garb. And Paul begins to take these pieces and teach us the spiritual truth. He says to put on the belt of truth. It's practical because it would tighten loose clothing. It would allow for movement. It would protect the midsection. It was a utility belt. But you know, it's got spiritual things there too. Because when you put on the belt of truth, you shall know the truth and the truth does what for you? Okay, I kind of like that idea, don't you? I don't want to be in bondage to Satan. I don't want to be in bondage to sin. I don't want to be in bondage to addiction or habit or, or mindset. I want to be free. I want to be free to be everything that God has absolutely called me to be. I want Jeremiah 29, 11 to be manifested in my life. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. The plans to give you a future and a hope. Now there's a counterpart to Jeremiah 29, 11. And Satan says, I know the plans God has for you. And I want to destroy every one of them. Well, I want the belt of truth. And if we're going to put on this belt of truth, we've got to begin to understand what truth is. Jesus in John 14, 6 was having a conversation and Thomas asked him an amazing question. How do we get there? What's the way? And Jesus said, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I am life. So Jesus is the essence of truth. So if you find something in your life that is counter to Christ, it is not truth. Because the Bible says that God cannot lie. So how do we get there? The spiritual of it is that Jesus is the essence of truth. But scripture is the word of truth. Because in John 17, 17 it says, Thy word is truth. So if I want to know truth, I've got to go read the instruction manual about truth. That's the Bible. It's there. It's where I get it from. The Holy Spirit is the confirmer of truth. Let's go ahead and take your Bibles. Turn on over with me to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Paul's writing this. Paul's writing this to Timothy, his young protege, the one that's his heir apparent, if you will. It's the last communication he's going to have with him, so he's writing it with urgency. But in chapter 3, verse 16, it says this, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, let's step back to another language, original language, breath of God. 
It is God-breathed. Like Jesus has minty breath. When he breathes, it's like, whoo, that smells good. Satan's got halitosis, okay? His breath stinks. So when he breathes, you're like, whoo! But when Jesus breathes, you're like, ah, yeah, see there? Now, Lindsay, I'm sure in your profession you've worked on both. And you want to go like, mm, or like, wow, look at there, yeah. See? But yes, all Scripture, God breathed. Holy Spirit breathed by inspiration. It's the confirmer of truth. Jesus said, I am the way. The Holy Spirit confirmed it when he inspired the writers of the Bible. I am the truth. The Holy Spirit confirmed it when he inspired the writers of the Bible. I am life. The Holy Spirit confirmed it when he inspired the writers of the Bible. But let's just stay right there because again, man, this is Paul giving instruction to us in the church. So Jesus is the essence of truth. Scripture is the word of truth. The Holy Spirit is the confirmer of truth. But he instituted and created the church to be the pillar of truth. Keep with me. All right, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good word. Now, actually, I need to go back and read the verses up ahead of it, and that'll make the point a whole lot better. Because I didn't read where I wanted to. All right. In verse 14, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul just told Timothy? Remember when you were a kid and you went to church and you learned the foundations? He says, now that you're a grown man and a grown woman, keep going to church because it's there that you learned them. It's there that you pass them on. Friday night, we got to have a boys camp out. Tim and uh, his uh, friend Ed and other people came together and made it happen and we had a boys camp out. And it was the opportunity to look at young men and say, man, there are grown men that love Jesus. And there are grown men that love you. And there are grown men that care about your tomorrow. Because listen to me, whoever wants the next generation the most is going to get them. And Satan is organized and active. And he's calling men of the church to come to church to love the young boys in the church so they'll grow up to be daddies who take their family to church. Yeah. So he says here, the church is the pillar of truth. It's the place where we expound the gospel. We dig through the hard things. We walk side by side when life is tough. How do we put on the belt? This is so simple. Y'all are going to go, I want my money back. All right, but here it is. This is how simple it is. First of all, you've got to accept Jesus. If you're here today and you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior and you think you're going to do battle against Satan, 
ain't going to happen. You are already defeated. So if you want to put on the belt of truth, you've got to accept the essence of truth, and that is Christ. You've got to acquire the Word. Your Word I put in my heart that I might not sin against God. Not that I got up early. Not that I felt bad about what I did. No, I put the Word in my heart so that I would not. i got to ask the Holy Spirit. Jesus, help me. Jesus, I know Jesus. If I take one millimeter of a step away from you, I am going to live my worst nightmare. Jesus, keep me in step. You attend church. You put on the belt of truth. He also told us to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Let's go back to that. Ephesians 6, because I want you to always know that it's there in the Word. Ephesians 6, 14. Stand therefore having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So in our day and time, let's think bulletproof vest. All right? Slide it on, Velcro it. says police across the front. You know what I'm talking about. That kind of thing. That was the equivalent of what Paul is talking about here, he's talking about something that would protect the heart, protect the lungs, protect the, the, the intestinal area of the body and other vital organs. But he says not just put on a breastplate. He's very specific. Do you agree with me? He says the breastplate of righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Righteousness is doing what is right in the sight of God. Doing what is right in the sight of God. Not what I think is right. The scripture will say that every man has a way that he thinks is right, but it will lead him to destruction. But God has a way that's totally right. So righteousness is doing things right, which would be right in the sight of God. When we stay in the boundaries of God's righteousness, we can expect God to protect us. Now hear me. I didn't say a rose-covered lane with gold streets were you sporting a Cadillac convertible. That is not what the Scripture says. God didn't say the way would be easy. He said the way would be protected. He said the way would make you into the person that I wrote about in Jeremiah 29, 11. When I step outside of God's boundaries, I open my mind, my body, and my spirit to things whose goal is to destroy me. Now, I would imagine if we had time today, we could stand up and give testimony of that moment in time when my way was better than God's way and my way destroyed I've never had a moment when I did it God's way that I regretted. I've had moments when I did it God's way that was tough. But I've never regretted. Another lie of Satan. Let me insert it right here. Oh, this is just me. It won't affect anybody else. Lie. If you do not sin in a vacuum, your sin affects others. When I live righteous, I have Peace. So what is the converse to a righteous life? If righteousness is doing what's right, righteousness is doing what's right in the sight of God, 
then unrighteousness is self-righteousness. I'm saying I am enough. I don't need God. So how do we put on the breastplate of righteousness? Philippians 3, 8 and 9 says this. It's in your outline. You don't even have to turn there. What is more, I consider everything a loss. Now who's writing this? Paul, right? And Paul was a very accomplished man. He had the credentials. He had the credibility. He had the pedigree. He had everything he needed to be a success in life. And here he is in a prison situation writing, I consider everything I used to be a loss for one thing. A loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Now, is that what society is teaching us today? No. It is not. Where are we seeing the worth placed today? What I have? What I know? Who I know? How many likes I get on social media? And even now, how much turmoil can I stir up? That's where the worth is being placed. Paul says, if I had all of that, I would count it as nothing for the knowledge of knowing what Christ has done for me. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, Paul says, actually, he describes to us two kinds of righteousness here. He says, righteousness from God, that's one type of righteousness, and then he says, my righteousness. His righteousness, self-righteousness, leads to destruction. God's righteousness leads to life, leads to peace, leads to, leads to victory. So when we talk about the righteousness of God, just very simply, because this is a study all by itself, I want to talk to you about imputed righteousness versus imparted righteousness. Imputed righteousness is 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old nature is replaced with the righteous, holy nature of God through the blood that he shed on the cross at Calvary. You cannot get imputed righteousness apart from Christ. In fact, the, the scripture would say that our good works are like filthy rags. In other words, at any moment that I try to be good enough, God says, oh, just go throw that in the towel pile. Imputed righteousness is while we were still sinners, Christ died for you. You got it at the moment of salvation and you can't get rid of it. It's like a runny nose that won't go away. It is always there. Speaking of. Y'all see that man over there with the strike down his leg? Sorry. Um, that's where we are. It's imputed to us. But now, imputed righteousness, to be complete, has imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness is the ability, once Christ has been imputed inside of me, 
Imparted righteousness is the strength to do the good works that lead to sanctification. Are you following me? There's something I need. I need Jesus inside of me. And once Jesus is inside of me, I need the ability to carry on. And that's where he imparts. It's the Holy Spirit that lives inside. It's the Holy Spirit that strengthens. It's the Holy Spirit that empowers me to say no to sin and yes to God. So let's put a bow on this this morning. It begins with accepting Christ. If you're relying on anything other than the blood of Jesus, then we're in trouble and you need to come running today and say, I want Christ. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior and you have stepped away from God, then the next step you need is to cry out and say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, draw me back to yourself. And then God, empower me with your Holy Spirit to live a righteous life to do the things, to impart in me the ability to do what is right in your sight, God. I believe this. That there are people that Satan has deceived. They believe they're born again, and they're going to be in that group of people that say, depart from me, for I never knew you. On that day. And there are people that do not need to leave this room today. Until they actually surrender their heart to Christ. But I also think this. That Satan has deceived believers to think. I've got enough. I've got enough. I've been to church. I got saved. I was baptized. I have been in a Bible study. So I'm okay. And the scripture says, as long as you're breathing, we need to keep on surrendering and we need to keep on growing. Where are you? Where are you? Father, this morning, we've got this word that says to put on the belt of truth. We've got this word that says put on the breastplate of righteousness. Truth gives life. Righteousness gives peace. And Father, I pray this morning, if anyone is not absolutely certain of their eternal life, of their relationship with you, God, would you, through your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself? God, would you make truth for them, the reality for them, this is the day of salvation. Father, for us that know you, that can get so easily distracted, so easily drawn away. God, would you help us to hit recenter, to come back to the, the person of truth, <laughs> to the word of truth, to the one that confirms truth, and connect ourselves to the place where truth is taught.
Father, it's this morning that we need you. It's every moment we need you, God. Just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. In our worship service, that is a time of response. To respond to the Word of God, to respond to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's a time for you to come and say, pray for me or to pray for someone else. It's a time where you can unite with the church. It's a time where you can say, I would like to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. It's a time where you can say, I would like to give my life to Christ. So after we stand and we begin to sing, we invite you to come to the front. The altar is open for you to pray, and we are here to talk with you. Lord, this is a time where life can be changed, eternity can be changed, families can be saved, addictions can be broken. God, we ask you to do that in us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, sing, we come.